0: God also this morning. Let's turn now to our scripture reading which comes from John chapter 20. John 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. In a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, "'Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away.' Jesus said to her, "'Mary.' Then she turned and said to him in Aramaic, "'Rabboni,' which means teacher.' Jesus said to her, "'Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, "'I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God.'" Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven; forgiven them, if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld." Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, "We have seen the Lord." But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So far, the word of God. Let's sing as we reflect on these things from hymn 34, stanzas 1 through (laughs) 4. The text to which we'll be giving our attention this morning are the same verses that we just read. And you may be help, helped by having your Bibles open with you. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me begin with the words that John began with in his letter in, In his first letter, which we read several months ago at the Lord's Supper, the very first words of that letter were, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, these things we proclaim to you. That's how John opened his letter. These are things, this is what he wants to emphasize, these are things that we have seen with our own eyes and we've touched with our own hands and we're testifying to you about those things concerning the word of life. That's very much what the Gospel of John also seeks to drive home. Indeed, that's what all of the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are eyewitness accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. John says it in, in, in his own gospel. We saw this last week in John 19 when he retells the story of Christ's death and the spear going into Christ's side. He says, He who saw it, speaking of himself in the third person, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. And then at the end of chapter 20, which we just read now, at the end of that Account, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, this is what the Gospels are, and this is what they seek. To do they are eyewitness accounts people who saw and heard Jesus teach and do miracles, they listened to him, they witnessed all he did over the years of his ministry they were there on the day of his death and they were there on the day of his resurrection and the gospels are their time to testify to the world that this is what they have seen and heard and they and they do this in order that we would believe and so that by believing that we would have life. That's what John explicitly says is his goal for his gospel. So this Easter morning then, let's dwell on this amazing reality that John saw and hopes to communicate to us, that Jesus' resurrection changes everything for those who believe. And we'll see first how we receive it from eyewitness testimony and the impact that it had on the eyewitnesses themselves. And then we'll see how His resurrection changes absolutely everything also for us who believe in Him. So first, let's look at the eyewitnesses themselves. What's amazing about the, the eyewitnesses that God in His providence had uh, appear there, had, had arranged to be there to witness these things What's amazing about them is how like us these eyewitnesses really are. They think like us. They respond just like we might. They process what they're seeing in, in ways that are very similar to the way that we ourselves would have processed them. And they come with no special qualifications at all. These are not men of legends or women of legends. And we see that right at the very beginning already so John twenty verse one now on the first day of the week Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now the other three Gospels mention other women who were with Mary, but John focuses just on the perspective from from Mary. And, and she's well-known at this point in John's Gospel. By the way, this is, this is Mary Magdalene, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she's well-known in John's Gospel for being particularly devoted to the Lord Jesus. And so John specifically chooses to focus on how her eyes and her mind processed what happened that morning. Now, the fact that it, it was dark, he says, while it was still dark... That's not just recorded there for the sake of being precise, although John is also a very precise writer, but he's also a master storyteller, and he's been using this theme of light and darkness all the way through the gospel. Even at the very opening of his gospel, he talks about how the light came into the world and the darkness was not able to overcome it. And through his gospel, he comes back again and again to those themes. Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. And and if you're reading John's gospel from front to back, or even if you're just reading it several chapters at a time in in big chunks, then these themes of light and darkness begin to make an impression on you, and, and they're designed to do that. And here, the darkness has already begun in chapter 13, several chapters ago, when, when Judas betrayed Jesus. He went out uh, from, from the Last Supper, and John stops the story to just tell us, by the way, it was night. So he's setting the, the stage and setting the mood for how we need to process what happened because from the disciples' perspective, from that moment on, things were indeed very dark even though uh, an entire day still passed by and it was, it was still light physically. But in the darkness of the gloom that overcame them all, it was very, very much still night. So from that point on in chapter 13, everything seems to be happening in the darkness and, and John wants us to be thinking about this darkness that he introduced already at the beginning. This is the darkness of the world that Jesus came to save. It's the darkness of sin, the darkness that so many people live in where the gospel is not known, where, where people's hearts are sold and enslaved to do evil. It's the deep darkness of hell that lives within the hearts of so many unbelievers apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And so John tells us the story of the resurrection beginning in the darkness. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb while it's still dark. Now this is, this is our first Eyewitness Mary Magdalene. And notice how honestly John tells the story from her perspective, how human Mary Magdalene really is. This is not some kind of legend where the apostles came to the tomb in the early morning fully expecting it to be empty, fully expecting the Lord to have risen. That's how you write legends, glorifying yourselves as the first disciples of Jesus. That's not how John tells this story. No, the first witness is a woman, a woman whose testimony in that time didn't even count for anything. And and she reacts to the empty tomb just like any of us might react. She sees that the tomb is empty, that the stone has been rolled away, and she does what anyone else would do. She goes off to find the body. She doesn't assume that Jesus must have risen. She assumes someone took the body somewhere else. So verse 2 says, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the body of, of the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So, This is not some superstitious or gullible woman. She's as skeptical as any 21st century man or woman might be. She wasn't coming to the tomb to see the risen Lord. She came to cry at the grave of a dead friend and teacher. And when she sees the tomb empty, the thought never once occurs to her that he might be risen. She just assumes that someone took the body to bury it somewhere else. So she calls the disciples, Peter and and John, and, and they come running to see Now, John introduces us this this fun little story about the two disciples running to the tomb, and he he takes the time to point out that he was the faster sprinter over against Peter. But at the same time, he's honest about the fact that he was also the one who didn't have the courage to go into the tomb himself. So we get a very honest picture of these disciples. John's not hiding the fact that he was a little bit afraid to enter a, a tomb. So we, we see again, these eyewitnesses are so human. They're so much like us. We get a very honest picture of them with all of their fears, all of their worries, their gloom that, that had settled over them after Jesus had died. This isn't at all the, the, the stuff of legends. So John gets to the tomb first and he, he kind of looks in and he thinks, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm, not, I'm not going in there by myself. I'm going to wait for Peter to come first. Well, when Peter arrives, he, he was the more courageous disciple. He entered the tomb, and he, when he went in, he says he saw the burial cloths lying there, and the face cloth folded up. Or, or actually, that's probably better translated, the, the ESV says folded up, but it's probably better translated "rolled, rolled up, the way it would have been wrapped around Jesus' head, except for the fact that now Jesus has completely vacated that wrapping. So it's still rolled up. It's not unrolled. It's just vacated and, and flattened uh, the way it would have been before Jesus was, uh, while Jesus was rolled up. So you notice also here that the level of detail in, in an eyewitness report. He's describing things exactly as, as they saw them. And, and what Peter saw would have made no sense at all. If you think about it, linen cloths lying there, the face cloth over there, and still rolled up. So this is not at all the work of thieves. You might think, what kind of thief would steal a body which is worthless and leave behind all of the cloths and the spices, which were the only thing that were actually valuable? Why would a thief leave those things behind? And and much more, why would they take the time to roll all those things up again as if there had been a body inside? And if if someone, even if if it wasn't a thief, but if someone had just come to take Jesus' body away, that's what Mary is assuming happened, they never would have unwrapped the body, and they certainly never would have left the linen cloths behind. So we don't know what Peter thought when he saw. The text doesn't tell us. But evidently, John had a hard time believing that Peter really saw what he saw. So at that point, he himself went in to see it for himself. And, and when he sees it with his own eyes, he tells us he he believed. and And I wouldn't take that as saying John believed that Jesus had risen. You can tell in the next verses that wasn't the case. But it seems to be saying he believed what Peter had told him. So he entered the tomb and he saw, yes, it really did. It really was exactly like Peter said. So then... Then Now both Peter and John have seen the inside of this tomb. They've seen the claws lying there. What then are they going to do? Well, verse 10 tells us, the disciples went back to their homes. That's all they did. There's, there's no moment where they say, yes, we, we knew it. We knew he was going to rise from the dead after all. No, they just go home. There's, they figure there's nothing else they can do. No one knows where the body went. So they just go home. Now in verse 11, we see Mary Magdalene stayed behind at the tomb to weep some more. And she, as she stood there, something in her apparently made her decide to, to double check what the disciples had seen or maybe to see if there was anything that, that they had missed. So she herself stoops down and looks into the entrance of the, of the tomb cut in, into the rock so it must have been a small, low entrance for her to have to stoop down to see into it. And when she did, she saw two angels sitting there inside the tomb. And verse 13 says, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she immediately responds, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid laid him. It's hard to imagine what must have been going through Mary's mind at this point. Don't, don't, Forget that she's of course still traumatized by by Jesus' death. She's still Uh, completely shaken up by grief but it seems she must have recognized that these were angels or perhaps she thought that she was having a vision from God you don't get the impression that she confused these angels for regular human beings otherwise you would imagine she would have obviously assumed that they were the ones who took the body but that's not what she assumes she tells them her fears she lays out her heart before them she talks to them about what's on her mind the way that you you would if you thought that you were being visited by angels or or having a vision and, and you'll notice she also seems to forget them almost as soon almost as quickly as she sees them the moment she sees someone else behind her she forgets all about these these two angels so she must have understood that they were angels or or at least understood that she was having a vision from god and and that's that's very believable in that time. There's, that's one thing that's different about that time and ours. That culture was much more in tune with the spiritual world than our culture is today. So they wouldn't have seen it as so unusual to have a vision or to, to have an encounter with angels. So she, she has that conversation with the angels and then she hears a voice behind her and she turns to him. Now she supposes this man to be the gardener. And and so that makes him then the prime suspect for who took the body and laid it somewhere else. When she told the disciples earlier, they have taken the body away, she would have been probably referring to to the gardeners, the caretakers of, of the burial grounds. So now she sees this man and she says to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away maybe she figured the gardeners just didn't want a crucified man desecrating these burial grounds. Don't forget this was the tomb of a rich man. So it would have been a a, a disgrace to have a crucified man buried in in those grounds. So she promises him, if you tell me where the body is, don't worry, I'll go, I'll take it away myself. And it's amazing, even at this point, even after seeing these angels all she's thinking about is someone stole the body. She's still absolutely convinced that Jesus is dead and gone, and all she wants is the body. She's not thinking at all yet about the possibility of resurrection. She's reacting really like any one of us would have reacted to, to these kinds of events, even though all the evidence is starting to point in a very different uh, direction. Well, then Jesus calls her by name, and suddenly you see in Mary her world is turned upside down. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, the language she would have spoken with Jesus, she says, Raboni, which means teacher. So one moment Mary is convinced that Jesus is dead and gone, and the next, Nothing else matters. She knows that he's alive. Yes, it's true. It still makes no sense to her. She still doesn't understand how this could have happened. And it goes against everything that she's ever believed or assumed, that dead men do not rise back from the dead. And yet, here he is, alive. And she sees him, and she knows that he has risen. And not just spiritually alive, like some people have have misrepresented the resurrection to be, but bodily, physically alive, standing right in front of her. And that changes everything it changes everything if jesus rose from the dead the one thing you hold to be true above everything else the the pattern of of existence that you believe yourself to live in the universe that you believe you live in changes if jesus has risen from the dead suddenly the axis on which your world turns has become something completely different. Either you live in a world where dead men just don't rise from the dead and that's the way that things work, or you live in a world where where the Lord Jesus has risen from the dead, and those are two very very different worlds. Mary Magdalene just now has been brought from one world to the other, and now she sees it with total confidence that her Lord Jesus has indeed risen. So, and I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, she gets up and she runs to him and embraces him. But Jesus' words to her are not what, what she expects. Verse 17, Jesus says, said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. So it, it's true, he's, he's alive, he's come back from the grave. He doesn't deny that, it's true and it's amazing. But it's also different than what she thinks. She seems to be hoping that now life can go on as normal. She can go back to the same old relationship that she always had with him. But Jesus says, no, do not cling to me. Do not hold on to me anymore like you might have held on to your friend Lazarus, whom I raised from the dead. That's not the kind of resurrection that this is. This is not going to be like Lazarus. So the Lord Jesus has come back from the grave but he's come back very differently he's come back a victor over death and over hell and now he's come back as king over the universe he has work to do and it's not the same kind of work that he did before his death and so Mary Magdalene and the disciples and Jesus own mother and Jesus brothers uh, they they were privileged to see Jesus in his earthly ministry but that's not ultimately What Jesus came for. Ultimately, he came to die and to rise again. And so now she's going to need to learn to relate to him, not in the old earthly way that she used to relate to him, but now as king over her and over the whole world. He's not coming back from the dead to live the same old life he lived before. No, this is something much, much bigger than that. So he says that she cannot keep embracing him the way that she must have been. She will embrace him, but this time by faith, like all people in the world must embrace him. So even though Mary believes she sees that Jesus has risen from the dead, she has not yet grasped the magnitude of what has just happened. He has done far more for her than she is still even capable of imagining. So he tells her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now I'll come back to those words in, in just a moment. Let's skip those for a moment. Uh, For now, just notice that Mary's mission, now that she's seen the Lord Jesus, her mission is to go and tell. She has seen what nobody else in history has ever seen, and Jesus commands her, go now and tell it to my brothers. So that's exactly what she does, and John doesn't tell us exactly how the other disciples responded. Of course, they would have known Mary has no reason to lie to, the, to them. They had learned to trust her over the years that they had known her, and they themselves had seen the empty tomb and the linen cloths rolled up in a way that would have made no sense at all. But at the same time, you don't get the impression that they now believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because you notice on the evening of that same day, and, and notice again the theme of darkness still hovering over the the affairs. On the evening of that day, they're still gathered together and the doors are still locked for fear of the Jews. So these are not a radically changed group of disciples, at least not yet. Either they're, they're not convinced That Jesus had risen, or they're not sure yet what to make of it, what it must mean for them. And so for now, we find them still very much afraid of what might happen on earth, afraid of the threat of the Jews. And again, notice, these are not the men of legends. These are not bold, courageous figures. They're very honest about themselves, that they were filled with fear even after hearing that Jesus had risen. So they are men just like us. And those are exactly the kind of men that Jesus chose to be witnesses to his resurrection. Well, as they're gathered together, our text tells us, Jesus came and he stood among them. And he told them, peace be with you. But apparently it... it, they, they were still afraid because he needs to say this twice, peace be with you. And only the second time after showing them his, the nails in his hand and, and on his feet and proving to them that he's not a ghost, then our text says they rejoiced. The ESV says they, they were glad, but, but it's, it's something. It, the word that's used is much stronger than that. It's not just they were glad, they indeed rejoiced. So the disciples see the Lord Jesus, they see his hands and his feet, and they realized, yes, this really is the Lord. Even though they don't know what it meant, even though they don't know how he could have come back from the dead, they see, they believe, and they rejoice. And then you'll notice the same thing that happened with Mary. He sends them on their way to go and tell. Same thing that he did with Mary. Now that you've seen me, he says, now that I've shown my hands and feet, go and tell the world that Jesus has risen. And that's where you get the Gospels. That's where you get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the disciples obeying the Lord's command to go and tell the world. And that's what we have the privilege of reading also today. Their eyewitness testimony. And yet there's one person who still needs to see Jesus. That's Thomas. Thomas wasn't there that first Sunday. And Thomas, we discover, is not convinced that Jesus has risen. Verse 25, Thomas said to them, "...unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand in his side, I will never believe." It's amazing how much this man is committed to his own five senses. If you just think about it, he hears ten of his fellow brothers, his fellow disciples, whom he's learned to trust, whom he's been with for the last three years at least, and surely he's also heard the testimony of Mary. And, and what do you do with a testimony like that? And no doubt he would have, in the, in the intervening week, he would have gone and seen the tomb for himself. And yet he still says, unless I see it with my hands or see it with my eyes and place my hands into those holes, I will never believe. This man is, is really so 21st century. He wants evidence. He wants indisputable, tangible, visible evidence because as far as he's concerned, his own five senses are the ultimate arbitrators of truth. If I didn't see it and hear it and taste it, touch it, or smell it, then as far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen. That seems to be his his approach. And, and it's really not that different from, from people of of our own age. Unless someone has proven it and measured it and it's there in a peer reviewed journal, then it cannot possibly be true. Now as a church, of course, we love science. We love our scientists and the exploration and discovery of God's world that demands measurement and visible proof are all good things. And, and for many of us, that's rightly a passion. But, for he, but here for Thomas and for, for many people, when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, it comes down to a different question altogether. The question is, what kind of God do you have? What kind of God rules your universe? Is God bigger than your universe? Is God bigger than than the laws of science. It's no mystery, of course, that dead men don't usually rise from the dead. That's not normal. That doesn't happen in the universe that God has made. But is your God bigger than the laws of that universe? Could God raise someone from the dead? Did he create this universe, as we saw in the last couple weeks? Does he continue to sustain it every moment by his power? This is not a question about evidence. It's a question about worldview and the kind of God that you believe in. Science, at least the way our culture has defined it, science has ruled God out as a matter of principle, The most fundamental a priori assumption in science is that God cannot factor in. God does not exist. There's always a natural explanation or else something didn't happen. And so even creation by God's hand is ruled out then by very definition. And so, of course, is the resurrection. And that's the kind of worldview that we we see in in Thomas, in spite of the fact that he's heard this testimony from ten trusted friends, as well as from Mary and, and perhaps from other people. This is a matter of the heart for Thomas. He's heard it from all these people, and yet he still insists, I cannot, I will not believe unless i see it or sense it with my own five senses yet we see god is is very patient with stubborn materialistically minded creatures like us verse 26 eight days later his disciples were inside again and thomas was with them although the doors were locked jesus came and stood among them and said again peace be with you and then he said to thomas put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed." Now Jesus is not arguing there. Uh, blessed are those who who don't care about the evidence. Blessed are those who who take a leap of blind faith. No, there was an abundance of evidence, and and one and you can look up online if you want for yourself some of the evidences for the resurrection, which are very strong. So Jesus is not saying, "Blessed are those who don't care about evidence," but blessed are those who, whose heart is is not whose heart that lives in God's world is able to listen to God's word and believe what God's word says in spite of what one might see or feel or hear so Jesus isn't arguing for blind faith there's abundant evidence for the resurrection. And, and most significant of all of that evidence is the fact that we live in God's world. With, if you open your eyes and see God's signature on all the things that, that he has made, that's surely the greatest argument for the, for the resurrection, that the very God who raised Jesus is also the God who created the world in the first place. So Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who don't care about evidence, but blessed are those who, hearing the testimony of the people 2,000 years ago, who saw and heard and touched and recorded it, blessed are those who, hearing that testimony, believe it, because they have a God who can do these kinds of things. Well, okay, some of us might ask, so maybe Jesus did rise from the dead What difference does it make? Well, let's go back to John 20, verse 31, the words that I also mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. Starting in in verse 30, it says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, John is making the argument here, believing leads to life. God gave us eyewitness testimony that we have no reason at all to distrust. They, they laid their own lives down for the sake of this testimony because they were so confident that they had seen what they had seen. God gave us those eyewitnesses so that we would believe because all that Christ accomplished for, through, through his death, through his resurrection, he did for those who would believe in order to bring them life. So let's go back to Jesus' words to Mary um, that I mentioned I would get back to, and also his words to the disciples. To Mary, he says in verse 17, he says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And what's Jesus' point there? It's that because of what he has done by dying for the disciples and by rising up again, he has restored the relationship between them and the Father. The Father is not just Jesus' Father anymore. He's also their Father. We who believe are counted together with Christ. We're counted with him on Good Friday when he laid down his life for us when our sins were nailed to the cross. And we're counted with him also then on Easter Sunday when he is restored to life. His resurrection is the proof that all that he had said and all that he had done was from God. And it's also the proof that the the curse of death, which lay over us before the cross, has been fully, completely canceled. It has been exhausted in Christ. God would not have raised him if his death was not enough to cover sin. He rose because the, the punishment was fully paid. And that's why God was able to raise him. And that's why God also is able to be our Father, to draw us also near to him. So now that Christ has risen, it can only mean one thing for us as believers. The curse of death for those who believe is over. Death is done. Death is not anymore the end of your story or my story because it wasn't the end of Christ's story either. He came to death and he overcame death. And here's where it breaks into our lives then also now in 2017. The fact that the curse of death is gone, it frees us now already from the power of death to hold us in sin. Hebrews speaks about the the slavery of, of sin as a result of the fear of death, the fear of coming judgment. And the world that is still in darkness is desperate to find some way to overcome that that threat of death or to put it out of their minds. And so they, they become slaves to sin, either slaves to self-righteousness, believing that all things are right with God because of the works that they have done, or slaves to distractions, slaves to drugs or slaves to parties or anything that might keep the knowledge of judgment as far from their minds as possible. But for those who are in Christ, who not only died with him, but also Are raised up with him, the joy of eternal life and the freedom from that fear begins now already because death doesn't hold. Anything over your head anymore. The thought of God for us who are in Christ is no longer synonymous with the thought of terrible judgment and fire because Christ, our head, is now with God and we are united to Christ. So the thought of God now is synonymous with joy and with blessing and with glory. He is our Father just as much as he is Christ's Father now. And so that means we can begin to live the new life, the resurrected life, already even now. We can fight against sin and fight against that darkness that the world is is left in and and that, that is still remaining in us. We can fight against that because in Christ, our head, we've seen that darkness defeated in him. So we can also then joyfully bear up the trials that we experience in life that might very much feel like darkness because we know that Christ went to the very gates of death. He experienced all the suffering of God's wrath and he went into the world of the dead facing the pangs of death and they could death could not hold the Lord Jesus down. So that means for us radical new life unenslaved by sin, unbound by the threat of death, inextinguishable by the suffering that we might endure. As Paul says, we we are afflicted in every way, but because of Christ, we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed, always carrying about in our body the death, of Jesus, So that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. Because we are in him, his life, his new life, can be seen or should be able to be seen in our own lives through our own bodies. You could say it this way. We are ourselves the greatest evidence of the resurrection, the new life that Christ gives to his people. And Christ's resurrection is is even more than that it also means future bodily resurrection for each one of us these bodies that can be racked with with pain and broken by by suffering full of weaknesses they will also just like Christ's body be raised again and they will be raised gloriously think of how the apostles suffered for this belief how countercultural it was at that time to believe that our bodies would be raised again how foolish that seemed to to Jews and to Greeks to at least the the Jewish elite, and to the Greeks. How foolish that belief was that our bodies would be raised again. In fact, Paul even had to fight against his fellow Christians who couldn't swallow that idea. You see that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But the eyewitnesses had seen it with their own eyes and touched his body with their own hands. They were confident Christ's body did indeed rise, and so our bodies will indeed rise, no matter how foolish people might think that doctrine is. They had touched his body. They had seen it rise. They knew that theirs would rise as well. And the bodies of our loved ones also, our parents, our friends, even our children, they too... Will be raised again because Christ's body was raised again. And and they will be raised glorious beyond imagination. In one sense, they will be raised the same body, just like a kernel of wheat, this is the metaphor Paul uses, just like a kernel of wheat is, is the same thing that it was once it's grown into a full plant, it's still the same thing. And yet, on the other hand, it's radically more glorious, radically different. It's unimaginably better. The seed, if you think about that metaphor, the seed that we are now really has no idea what it will be when it's a full-grown plant. How much better, how much more glorious it will be. Well, that's the glorious future that you and I look forward to because of what Christ did 2,000 years ago, rising from the dead. And, and it's amazing, in, in God's providence, he arranged it so that the, the most normal, weak, regular human eyewitnesses would see it would touch his body, and would go and tell us so that you and I would also believe, not on the basis of of legend or legendary figures that we cannot relate to, but normal human beings just like us who saw it and at Jesus' command went and told and wrote it down so that we ourselves can also read that eyewitness testimony. So this Easter, then, brothers and sisters, let us indeed celebrate Christ's resurrection. And let us also, as we look forward now to the final day, let us also become the evidence of the resurrection in our own lives and in our own bodies. The light of of the morning, the the new life of Christ has shone into our hearts. That's a phrase that, that Paul uses. So let us also then shine that same light of the resurrection by bearing witness about the fact that Christ has risen and showing to the world the radical implications of that fact in our own lives. We look to our resurrected Lord with hope and with a joy that cannot ever be taken away no matter what we might endure because our Lord has risen and He's there at the Father's side and we too will be risen
1: with Him. Amen. Let's sing in response.